You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. Welcome to part two of the 10 most thought-provoking client questions received by my guest, Michael Power, investment strategist at 91 in Cape Town. Michael, the first five were thought-provoking enough. Let's have a look at the second five, if we can. Question number six, who will disrupt the disruptors? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean the big players out there in the tech space at the moment, not just the tech, the Teslas as well, um, who are uh, to some extent redefining the shape of many industries. Um, and, and, and winning very big because of it. Um, this question came from a client in, in Melbourne, Australia, and it probably made me think almost more than any other question. I just so liked it because it's, it's, it's based on a very famous who will guard the guardians question, which is always asked in political economy. Um, and, uh, and I loved it because it, 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 it has so many different angles to it. It's got uh, competition. Uh, it's got the tech war with China. It's got government. And so there were all sorts of different players and, and they can all have their part. I mean, there's no single one, as it were, magic bullet that is, is going to disrupt a disruptor. They basically got, uh, in my opinion, four broad uh, groups they need to be worried of. The first is, is the regulators. Um, and I think that, for instance, in a, in, a, in a U.S. where Biden wins, if Elizabeth Warren becomes the Treasury Secretary, um, she's probably going to go after uh, a lot of the tech companies as a result or the monopolies. And that seems to be the thing that they're now looking at much more than specifically in the narrow sense tech. The EU Commission, um, I think, is, is, is going to appeal the, uh, the inter- interim decision that favored Apple and Ireland. Uh, and take Apple's uh, Irish Sweetheart tax agreement to the European Supreme Court. But that's, I think, the second aspect. The first aspect is the OECD has now understood and agreed, obviously the United States not participating, uh, in the idea that um, that tech, uh, in terms of the way they've structured themselves uh, in their multinational arrangements, especially with regards to tax, uh, is going to have to be much more highly regulated. So that's actually a a pan-global uh, approach to regulating um, uh, the disruptors. I think also uh, notice in the United States that we may end up with regulation of share buybacks. Um, I think the Democrats now realize what's been going on here, that basically American companies have in large part uh, not been investing nearly as much in their companies as they might have been, but rather using uh, the free cash flow to, to, to buy back shares and boost their share prices. And so in many cases, uh, management share options. I mean, the story of how Boeing basically used its cash to buy back shares uh, rather than invest in, in R&D is, is, is a, a salutary tale. I mean, had they invested in R&D and created a new model to rival the Airbus Neo, which was 40% more fuel efficient than, than Boeing's offering, um, they might have not uh, been forced to what I call jerry-rig the existing 737 and leave us with the mess that we now have in that space. So I think the, the regulators are one. The next, of course, is, is the competition. There's always the competition. Um, obviously, those companies that benefit from what's called the network effect, like Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft, probably have higher barriers to entry than the likes of, say, Netflix, Tesla, or NVIDIA. Um, and I think the latter three really do have to uh, look to their knitting. Um, Apple can retreat into its ecosystem, and I think that seems to be what it's doing at the moment, even though it's actually falling behind in the tech race. Uh, only last week did we get its first 5G offering of a, from a phone, um, and uh, Huawei and Samsung have had one out there for, for 18 months. I think the, the real challenge potentially coming through, and 
both Huawei, but especially Samsung is is probably going to do this, is the, is the foldable phone. It might seem like a gimmick, but once you've actually seen it, you think, my God, this is amazing. Yeah. Because it has the capacity to both take on Apple's iPhone and the iPad at the same time. And uh, I think that is a real challenge. So watch out for the competition. Uh, Netflix is probably going to have to face down Disney Plus uh, with its ESPN, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, National Geographic combo. Um, uh, Tesla, uh, I think, is, is, is bringing down its prices. And that's a very interesting side. It's bringing down prices sharply at the moment because I think it does realize that the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Germans are going to come up with electric car offerings that are potentially going to undermine. You know, Tesla could end up being the sort of Harley Davidson of the, 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 um, um, uh, the auto sector. But the reality is Harley Davidson is, is, doesn't have that many um, sales at the moment in unit terms. Um, and, and big boys are all in Asia. Actually, interestingly, with India being the, having the two largest uh, motorcycle companies in the world today. Uh, NVIDIA, I think, has legs, um, but it's uh, with its graphics cards and, and the acquisition of ARM from the, of the UK is intriguing. But I think the Chinese threat comes here, too. The third is the tech war with China. And I think Apple and Tesla are especially exposed here because they generate so much of their revenue in China. What if they were shut out of this market? And we saw an early indication of what might happen earlier this week when Apple's iPhone 12 China launch was, was thwarted by technology issues, uh, which is a euphemism for basically they weren't allowed to actually um, do their, 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 their digital launch. It was it blocked, sorry, it was blocked by the authorities from what I understand. Yeah, I was tripped up, but they used the euphemism. To, uh, um, I can't remember what it was, but it was they basically blamed it on the, you know, the, the Zoom technology or whatever technology they were using. But the, the, the authorities basically mm. uh, blocked it. You're absolutely right, uh, which is which is an indication of, of of how the tech war with China might play out. So far as allowing, you know, uh, especially U.S. companies, to operate freely within China. Uh, my final uh, disruptor of the disruptors uh, is. Um, is the Pony Express factor. What I call, uh, this is a, a wonderful st story, how it was the dominant player in getting messages from the east to the west coast in the United States in 1860, and within a year it was dead because the telegraph arrived. Mm. Few saw it coming, and it was instant. Game over. Um, and you have to ask yourself, so what out there might be so disruptive? It's not easy to see almost by definition. Um, white graphene, for instance, which is not at all graphene, might completely overhaul the process by which microchips are made. Quantum cryptography, which is a sector the Chinese completely dominate, could uh, completely wipe out the process by which we communicate uh, on electronic devices. I think one of the other things that you have to worry about is free open source co uh, computer software. Um, Microsoft considers this to be their, their greatest ni nightmare. I mean, Bill Gates said our business could be over in a week if we can basically come up with a mechanism whereby a new open source computer program with a Babelfish attached to it can allow interface with any other software. The thing about all of these Pony Express factors is that this type of disruptor is almost by definition not identifiable till it's too late. But you need to be aware of it. Michael, just going back, there's so many fascinating points there. And two things that really strike me. Number one, 
if you can find a company that will disrupt the disruptors meaningfully and you can get in at the ground level when it comes to its share price, if indeed it is listed, then you're made for a few years at least. And the second thing is... Well, the, that would have been the case with Amazon, wouldn't it? Yes, indeed. And a couple of others as well. But also the Tesla price fall. I noticed the Tesla S has come down to $62,000, I think it is, which to me still seems a little bit steamy. Question number seven, is Europe getting its act together? I'm looking out, uh, I've, I've been looking out metaphorically over the European landscape in the last few days no it's not in certain ways but is there a ray of hope do you think well as you know on my slides i've got just a picture of winter is coming um i think that on the surface there's a sense that um seemingly yes uh the problem is that deep structural faults remain um and uh, these are not going to go away um and if anything they're potentially going to get aggravated by covid19 and the debt that results from covid19 uh, I think that Europe has, at least up until now, and this may be now changing literally uh, this this week, um, Europe's looked relatively good because of uh, the U.S. being in such a political mess. But with COVID-19 uh, again returning with a vengeance in Europe, um, perhaps that's um, that was too early. Uh, I think also um, we're now beginning to realize how dependent Europe has become on travel and tourism. I mean, Southern Europe basically missed the summer tourist season in 2020 and 2021 is looking a bit iffy as well and skiing was the super spreader event of early 2020 and uh, we've already seen the austrians basically saying that 2021 skis uh, season will have no apres ski so uh, big changes are coming uh, until there is uh, some clarity on on the issue of covid19 um also, just as an aside, um, air travel at 25 capacity, what does that mean for a company like Airbus? Admittedly, uh, probably the best uh, aircraft manufacturer in the world at the moment. But nevertheless, um, that's a big hit. The other thing that really does, and it echoes something I've said before, um, really haunt me is the negative uh, real and even nominal rates that you're now seeing um, throughout Europe, which, yes, it does speak to Dick Cheney's do deficits no longer matter and suggest the answer is no. But I have to ask the question how much government uh, and now EU guaranteed debt is too much debt. I mean, will it eventually swamp the system? Um, understand as well is that behind the scenes, uh, Germany's been bailing out Italy and Spain with the so-called Target 2 mechanism. It's bunged them. I think that's the correct technical term, uh, about uh, 500 billion euros each um, just so that they can keep going. Uh, these are these are th things that are not going to go away. They're only, in my opinion, going to get worse. Meanwhile, we have to ask the ECB how low can rates go. And I think Christine Lagarde is channeling her inner draggy wit, which means whatever it takes. She's hesitating. She's hesitant. Uh, and I think she'll go lower if she has to. Um, but she doesn't want to uh, say automatically that she will. So this all comes back to this MMT, modern monetary theory. I mean, there is a sense that, oh, we found the, the nirvana of, of monetary policy now. We just print money. What's the catch on that? In a word, ultimately, currency. Yeah, that's where I think that the, the big reckoning is going to come, not just for Europe, but for the United States and, and UK and Japan as well, is that they can carry on printing money like they are at the moment, but eventually it'll come out in the wash of currency. Um, yeah, in the short term, the ECB doesn't want the US dollar or sterling to be too weak against the euro. But the real issue is, is what is China doing? Um, and what China is doing at the moment is 
upgrading its industrial capacity even more than it already has. And I think next in line to be hit by this is, is Germany, Inc., and to some extent Japan, but, but Germany especially, and a few other European industrial companies as well. So I think that um, there's a problem longer term, um, and it's going to be reflected in the currency. And aside on, on Brexit, which is almost, dare I say it, a sideshow at the moment, um, yeah, the sense is that the, the, the UK has got more to lose, but it's not a one-sided loss. The EU runs the current account surplus, not the UK. And so the EU can um, strut its stuff, um, but the reality is that um, this is not something about which it's just a simple win or lose. Uh, both sides are basically going to lose unless they can come up with a decent deal. Okay, yeah, Brexit looming large. They really are leaving it to the last minute again. I just wonder who's going to blink first. Anyway, uh, let's go on to question number eight. How do I get into Asia, especially China? Especially with the regulatory environment changing, will probably change again at the five-year plan that you re referenced in your first five questions. What do you think? How do we do it? Look, I think the first thing to say is that the age of watching Asia from afar is over. I mean, there was a sense of saying it's all very well and interesting, but really it's too complicated for me to get involved in and there's more than enough for me to getting, uh, be getting on with in the Western world capital markets. I don't think you can take that position much longer. Um, if you had got involved in the past, uh, two years ago, you'd have said to me, uh, you'd have heard me say, go the cappuccino option, buy a Nestle or a Richemont because they're investing in China on your behalf. I'm not sure that works either any longer. I think that's what I call a too milky an option. It's too diluted. From now on, you have to go espresso, which is essentially have a regional fund or double espresso, a single country fund, a China fund. Um, I think you really have to now start engaging up front. Um, and I don't think you can do it as a sort of arm, uh, arm's length any longer. You've really got to get involved. You probably have to then buy regional single country equity and bond funds actively managed or via ETFs. But if fire ETS do understand that index construction lags because indices have become political footballs, yes, of course, uh, I'm part of an active manager, so it would certainly save this. But the indices are warped, and there's a lot of capping going on in those indices, which makes it very easy, generally speaking, for an active manager to outperform them. Uh, that may not always be the case. But for now, uh, and for quite a lot of the foreseeable future, I think that will be the case. You mentioned, you know, Chinese uh, is, oh, but uh, it's too complicated. There's major reform happening in Chinese capital markets, both uh, bonds and equities. Um, this week, um, market cap in China crossed the $10 trillion mark. Um, what's happening in the Hong Kong, Shanghai and Shenzhen stock markets that they're being individually upgraded, um, but collectively connected through, through digital platforms to to some extent, buying any instrument on any of these markets is going to be fungible into any of the other markets. And to be honest, Hong Kong in particular is a very important um, front window for this whole process because most Westerners trust the regulatory environment um, of Hong Kong. At least it's enough. Um, what we're seeing as well, of course, is that Hong Kong is being enhanced by Peking's ducks coming home to roost, those US ADRs that have been chased away from America by Trump. They're coming back to Hong Kong and to some extent Shanghai. We're also seeing new IPOs and listings, obviously the big and financial that's coming, and that will be the largest financial company in the world. But interestingly, we're now seeing the Koreans and the Filipinos starting to list their companies uh, on the Hong Kong exchange as well. So it's becoming a bit of a regional capital market and not just a China capital market. The other thing which I don't think we uh, can underestimate 
is the growing weight of Chinese retail and institutional investors on, on stock prices. I mean, 10 years ago, HSBC was the largest shareholder in Ping An Insurance, now the world's largest insurance company. It disposed of that holding. Ping An is now the largest shareholder in HSBC. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what goes around comes around. Um, in all of this, remember currency. Yes, if you're dealing out of dollars, um, the DXY has shown weakness in 2020, but it's not one-way weakness. It does have periods of rebound, but I, uh, you do have to remember currency in this mix. If you're looking at a more fixed income option, Asian property REITs are potentially quite attractive. What then are, are the risks? Well, there is this uh, issue of Chinese lack of transparency. I always like to remind everyone that Alibaba chose the New York Stock Exchange over the Hong Kong Stock Exchange because of the easier listing rules with regards to what's called founder shares in the United States than in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was more transparent. Interesting. There's also the fallout from the U.S.-Chinese arm wrestle. Could U.S. institutions be banned from investing in China? I think government institutions might be, although I'm not sure that's going to happen under Biden as much as it might happen under Trump. I don't think the Europeans, however, are going to be boycotting uh, Chinese capital markets with, with their capital. So that's, that's some consolation. So that Ping An HSBC story really does sum it up. If you get it right, if you go in with the right partner and you are aware of the risk, if you get it right in Asia and China, then goodness me, you get it spectacularly right, I would imagine. Okay, question number nine. Two more to go. How do you best preserve capital? Is that the phrase of note, the phrase juste, in other words? In other words, preserve capital first and look for growth once you've done that. Well, that was Mohammed Al-Aryan's great one-two rules of, of investing. The first rule is that don't lose money for the client. And the second rule is once you fulfill rule number one, you move on to fulfill rule number two, which is to make money for the client. So I think that very often, um, especially, dare I say it, in the retail uh, uh, space, a lot of people uh, never really address the first question of preserving capital. They somehow take it a little bit for granted. I'm not sure that's quite the same in institutional space, and especially where you have uh, for instance, a multi-asset uh, portfolio, they think quite a lot about preserving capital. So there's always quite a high exposure to, to, to fixed income. Uh, I think you're, you, you put your finger on, on, on the button here. The question's not about uh, what's the better asset class for, for capital gain. And if you think this question is trying to answer that, then it's not. But in answering this question, the first thing you need to decide upon is your currency of account. Back to that currency issue again. Remember, the U.S. has been, uh, uh, the DXY has been weak during 2020. There has, to some extent, always been a default option in the form of cash as the best way to preserve capital. Well, you know, if you're putting cash on deposit in Europe at the moment, you're paying for the privilege. Um, so it's no longer the obvious choice. Uh, in real terms, you're not getting a return in the U.K. Uh, or the U.S. either, um, and uh, especially when you adjust for, for currencies. In fact, bizarrely, you probably... Uh, given the capital gain that you've received on the euro, notwithstanding the loss you've received on the on the yield, actually made money on a on a euro deposit if you're a dollar investor over the course of this year. Bizarre double logic reasoning, but that's exactly what's been happening. Point being is, don't forget currency. Elsewhere in the world, you know, I think we've been talking for long enough that my my secret uh, source in terms of currency investment worldwide has always been the Singapore dollar. Yes. Um, and I think the best, um, what I call cash stepping stone into Asia. You might be tempted to look at the Aussie dollar. Yes, uh, it does have a positive yield, but the currency is very volatile, unlike the Sing dollar, which does move. 
but nothing like uh, the Aussie dollar does. The one thing we have to come back to realizing, and I hinted at it before, is that bonds are no longer playing the cr critical anchoring role in, port in portfolio construction that they once did. Uh, even U.S. tips uh, are negative 1%, which means, by definition, in real terms. So you're not actually, even if you put money in tips in real terms, you're losing money. Property has always been considered to be uh, another area where you can uh, find downside protection. But again, beware here. Um, you know, Post-COVID, some U.S. Uh, commercial real estate values are down 25%. I know that you normally live in the Netherlands as a very famous Dutch property company. I think it's seen its share price fall by 75% over the course of this year. And it's yes. previously regarded as probably the, the savviest of all property investors worldwide. Um, there is growing interest in Asian real estate and bonds. Uh, both still have a, a positive yield and a degree of uh, protection against the weak U.S. dollar. And then finally, there's that, that uh, you know, wild card out there, gold. Um, it can offer protection against a weak U.S. dollar. The old story about why you didn't invest in gold uh, was that it didn't give you a yield. Well, I'm afraid that's now disappeared because basically cash and bonds don't give you yields either. So um, it, it's fair game, as it were, across the board between gold, cash and bonds now. Um, and a lot of people are opt opt opting for gold. Yes, indeed, as seen in the price, which uh, it's just having a consolidatory period at the moment. It's just hovering around that uh, 1900 level. But I think it's poised for greatness myself as well. Personal opinion, of course. Final question, Michael. Is the inflationary genie escaping the monetary lamp? This has been a question that's been going on ever since quantitative easing and super low interest rates have been a part of our lives. When will inflation emerge? When, if ever, Michael? Well, there are two things here. First of all, short term versus long term. And secondly, perhaps more interestingly, um, West versus East. And uh, there's a different answer for each combination of those, those four items. Short term in the West, probably not, because labor is in oversupply everywhere. Um, debt monetization is rampant. Uh, the banking system is bruised. And you need to have a basically half healthy banking system that actually help generate inflation. Because but it's not half healthy because the money multiplier is, is post-2008 rarely been above one. Uh, if you're an economist, you go back to your MV equals PT equation. Uh, the money supply, yes, that's growing, but the velocity is sluggish. Uh, prices are sluggish and transaction uh, is recovering only very gradually. So there's not any danger sign in that combination. Meanwhile, of course, outside of this, Chinese spec capacity is keeping a lid on prices of products that are globally traded. Um, goods prices, but not food, interestingly, are generally softer than many service prices. Uh, rental prices have been soft, too. Uh, the bizarre one space where we have seen some upward direction in, in valuations has been in individual property prices. Um, but that's a, a direct function of almost zero interest rates. Uh, as you know, there's almost a, a property bubble by definition beginning to develop in many parts of, of, of the Western world uh, at the moment. Longer term, I have a basic rule here, and that is if your currency rises against the dollar, your risk of importing inflation is probably blunted, and a lot of Asia is going to fall into that category. If your currency falls along with or even, think of in South Africa, versus the U.S. dollar, your risk of importing inflation increases. So again, it comes back to the issue of currency. Currency has probably become either the dampener or the uh, transmitter of inflation, depending on which side your world uh, tends to be on. 
Michael, that concludes the 10 most thought-provoking client questions that you've received so far in 2020. I think the last two months, November and December, will throw up even more questions. But I would also like to say that your answers to the thought-provoking questions have provoked even more thoughts. Michael Power is an investment strategist at 91. Thanks for your extended time. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.